Morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Good to see you. We are making our way through this. This has been a, a journey. I, I, I commend you all for sticking it out. Learning the Maharal is not for the faint of heart. Um, and you're all troopers for, for still being here. So thank you. Making sure that I'm not talking to myself. Uh, <laughs> so uh, today we're going to touch upon uh, this section of the book focuses on a very, very fundamental question, a very, probably one of the most fundamental questions um, that a critique or question that's asked against the rabbis. So far, we've been talking about difficult passages, passages that seem at face value to not be so, uh, make so much sense. And we've shown the depth of those, of the, of the meaning of those passages. Great. But in these, this section, what we're going to be focusing on is science. Because, science. Science. Because if you look throughout the Talmud, the rabbis will be weighing in on matters of science, nature. They'll talk about uh, the, the revolutions of the sun and the moon and things of that nature, the planets, and, and how the world is constructed, which we'll be focusing on shortly. And when we read this and we ask ourselves, wait a second, this doesn't match up with our knowledge of science. It seems to be, there seems to be a great discrepancy between what the rabbis are writing and what we know and things that have been proven scientifically. And so if they are seemingly incorrect in regards to some of the scientific ideas that they share, or for example, there's vast sections which seem to be describing uh, you know, medical procedures. If you have this illness, do this. If you have this illness, do that. I wouldn't try it at home. I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't tell you. I would tell you it would be forbidden. If you were to ask me a Shiloh, should I go ahead and treat my headache or treat my illness with what the rabbis write in the Talmud? I would say absolutely not. And yet, these are the rabbis that we're trusting to know about how we keep Shabbos, how we keep kosher, how we do in our entire life, right? So this, I would believe, I, I think in the Maharal's time, this critique was not as pronounced as it is in the modern era. Again, he's writing this about 400 years ago. But today, this is one of the strongest critiques or questions that people have about Chazal, the sages of the Talmud. Because much of what they almost everything that they write from a scientific perspective, not everything, much of it, a good percentage of it, doesn't seem to be consistent, in which case we're left with the question, how do, we, how, do we, how do we take them seriously if we know there are parts of what they're writing that seems to be lacking, that seems to be falling short? Okay, so what we're going to do today is learn the Maharal's approach, but what we're also going to do is share a piece from Rav Samson Rafal Hirsch because he takes a very different approach. So today we're going to see two different approaches. Let's jump in, okay? So we are on the first page, the first paragraph. Again, I'm going to be reading it in Hebrew. The translation is there for you on the bottom of the page. So literally, chachmos is like wisdom. But wisdom, what he means by wisdom is the sciences, which they spoke about, the rabbi spoke about. And from our perspective, it seems very strange. It has been explained to you. That what brought these critics to say this or to think this about the rabbis, this is from what they found in the rabbis' words, that they gave, natu- that they gave explanations behind thing- natural things that we see in the world. So in other words, when, you know, you, there, there is a different phenomena that we are aware of. Let's just take an example, you know, that there is gravity, okay? So I drop my little Listerine pack over here and it falls to the ground. In the Talmud, and this doesn't actually, actually exist, but the, in Talmud, you may find a reason that has nothing to do with gravity. It would say something like, I don't know, there are angels that are pulling it down, or they'll say something which does not jive with what we know. Right? And therefore it appeared to them, that the reasons given by the rabbis, they're very foreign, they're very distant. That this is a true natural cause. What the rabbi is saying is not true. Because when they read these passages, because of this, they, the critics, said about Chazal, our sages, that they were very distant, that they were, in, in, in the ancient language, distant means like they were, they were just uneducated. They were, they were distant from the true wisdom. They just simply didn't comprehend it. They didn't know how the world worked. Then says, says the Maharal, This is not the case whatsoever. This is not the truth. So here he suggests a, a, an approach, which is not agreed upon by everyone, but this is the Maral's approach. The Maral says that whenever you see the rabbis describing something about the natural world 
and they seem to be giving a natural explanation. He says, you're reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. Their job is not to be a scientist. They are not coming to tell you the scientific rationale behind something. Because it says, in truth, the natural reason is small. It's, it's just simply not so significant. He says, natural phenomena, medicine, science, those are topics which should be discussed by whom? By scientists, by doctors. Are the rabbis scientists? Are the rabbis doctors? No. They are sages. They are philosophers. They are scholars. So if they are speaking, and although it sounds like they're giving a medical, medicine, medical advice, or it sounds like they're giving some scientific explanation, he says, it can't be. The rabbis, you know, in modern parlance, we say they stay in their lane. They stay in their lane. This is what they do. They are philosophers. They are the ones who are sharing with us the perspective of God. They're not talking about science. They're not talking about medicine. Let's keep on reading for one second, and then I'll take your question. They are sages. When they give a reason behind something, they are giving the primary reason, not the natural phenomenon, not the natural reason, not because E, equal, you know, e equals MC squared or something of that nature. They're giving the deeper reason, the spiritual reason that causes that. In other words, I will tell you, you know, you'll tell me that the reason that this thing in my hand falls down and, and hits the ground is because of the force of gravity. But why does gravity exist? Why did God, who, who is the designer of the world, why did he create a world where things that are in my hand, when I drop them, they are drawn back to the earth, drawn back to a larger body? Why? What's the reason behind that? That's the rabbi's job. The rabbi, meaning not modern rabbi, the chazal or sages of the Talmud, of the Mishnah, of the Medrash, their job was to explain the deeper reason behind things. They weren't talking about science. They weren't talking about medicine, nature. They're talking about the metaphysical. They're talking about what precedes that. The machish and he says, and someone who negates this, machish Torah. In truth, they are in some way rejecting, they're in some way um, Going ahead and, uh, you know, and, and, and negating the, the truth in the Torah. He'll explain. One of the a very famous passage in the beginning uh, in, in Parshas Noach that the Torah describes the rainbow, right? Why do rainbows show up in the sky? Why do rainbows show up in the sky? I don't know enough about the science, but someone here could tell you. Refra- refracted light. Yeah. There you go. Okay, there you go. So you have the light that's refracting from the drops of water in the atmosphere, and through that, you, you see the beautiful colors, right? Okay. But the Torah itself, not the rabbis now, the Torah itself says, God says, I am giving you the rainbow. Why am I giving, why am I, cre- why is this rainbow here? Right, God says, I'm giving you the rainbow, Noah, so I can have a sign to remind me not to destroy the world. Which one is it? Is it simply because the world is, you know, the, the way the world is constructed, that there's going to be, or, uh, you know, you're going to see the light you're going to, through, the, through the raindrops, through the, light, through, the, through the moisture, and therefore you're going to see those beautiful colors? Or is this a sign that God created, right? So the, the, the response to that is that, right? So let's, actually, let's read it inside. V'chachme hateva, and the scientists, nasnu siba tivit They give the natural reason. That was just explained to us, right? Um, behind a rainbow. Kemoshi Yudumi Devrim, as it's known in the words. But the matter is as follows. The reason given the Torah, that is the prime reason, the metaphysical reason, the spiritual, the reason that God put that into nature. Because everything in the world has a natural cause. But behind every natural cause is a spiritual cause. Everything in nature ultimately comes initially from God and therefore has a spiritual reason as well, right? And it is the reason of the reason. It is the prime reason. And this is what our sages said. Okay, and then he goes on. He gives another example, the notion of when it says that we are created in the image of God. Right? What does it mean we're created in the image of God? Right? So, and, and it says the reason we look like the way we look is because God wanted to create us, create us in his image. And he points out, well, the reason we look what we look, the reason we look the way we look is we could also chalk that up to some form of evolution and development, etc. And that would also be true. The reason our ears are over here and our eyes are over here, etc., etc. But, but there's a primary reason that's guiding that, and that's the spiritual reason that God wants us ultimately to, whatever this means, to be in his divine image. Which one's true? 
They're both true. One's nature, one's science, and one is the cause of science. One is the spiritual cause behind science, guiding science, dictating what science should actually be. Okay, so one important principle. So again, let's start with the challenge. The challenge is there are passages in the Talmud which seem rather unscientific. So the Maharal is suggesting a principle, a very important principle, which again is not agreed upon by all. But he suggests the rabbis are not scientists. And therefore, they stay in their lane. They don't speak about science. Some of them may have practiced some science on the side. Some of them may have been doctors on the side. But the Talmud is not a book of medicine. It is a book of Torah. It is a book, the word Torah from Hora'ah, teaching you what to do. Right? So it's going to have to have some moral and spiritual you know, flavor to it if it's going to show up in the Talmud. And therefore, whenever we see a scientific explanation in the Torah, one approach, he's suggesting we here, is to understand that it is the spiritual cause and not the natural cause. And therefore, there is no contradiction. It's just that it's apples and oranges. We're not talking about science. We're talking about metaphysics, the spiritual realm. Okay, sorry. I, I, thank you for your patience. Okay. Um, so the first word, Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oppositionally almost, of a chachamim. Correct. Is, yeah. Um, so he, a, a totally tangential. So let me address that first question. He's using the vernacular. In the vernacular, chachmot is the term that's used for wisdom, yeah. capital, well, you know, wisdom in general, all the sciences. No, just to see it in the, that's yeah, and chacham, right. So it's just, yeah. I don't know. It's not even clear if he got a degree. He may have just audited some classes, but I don't know. Oh, I'm, not okay. a, I'm not a historian, but you, there, there's a lot of debate about that. But yes, go ahead, Peter. If you're saying uh, that, uh, I understand what you're saying, but why, like in Parak and others, they said, uh, they said that they had knowledge of science, the Rabbanim and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they seem to know. I'm not saying they have to uh, give their opinions on science, because like what you're saying, but the, why, why do they make such a big deal that they also had knowledge of science? It's a great point. It's a great point. You know, that so much so, uh, this is an important, we could spend a whole, whole, whole sheer on this, or 10. Um, you know, the, the, there's a Gemara that speaks about, in San, earlier in Sanhedrin, the first dafim of one of the, one of the great rabbis who spent uh, a good amount of time, I forget the exact time frame, doing field work. He had to rule on different animals, right? So, you know, you could study in a yeshiva your whole life, but guess what? I don't, I, I, you, know, I, 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 you don't know what an animal looks like. You know, you don't know anything about the innards of an animal, about the, the mumim, the, the blemishes of an animal. So he spent time in a farm. He spent time on a farm because without that, you can't rule on Jewish law, depends on the type of law, without having a deep knowledge of the world, right? So yes, the Gemara does make a big deal about the fact that the judges were very worldly, extremely worldly, because without being worldly, you have, it's impossible for you really to weigh in on important questions. What the Maharal is suggesting is not that they weren't worldly, it's that if they are sharing viewpoints, in the, if it gets codified in the Talmud, it must be because that's something to teach us. More than just nature, more than just science, more than just history, it has to have something, there's, there's, a, there's a specific moral slash spiritual angle in the Talmud. So it's not to say, thank you for bringing that up, it's not to say that they weren't knowledgeable, it's that what we find in the Talmud isn't about their worldly secular knowledge, it's about spiritual knowledge. Okay, now let's turn the page and you'll see a nice little picture in front of you. What you see in front of you, um, sorry for those who are listening, uh, I'll just describe it, is a picture that is, was pretty common in the not even so ancient world, a few hundred years ago, about the way the world worked. Okay, so first thing you see about the world, of course, is that it's flat. Because until, you know, a little while ago, many people thought the world was flat. So Earth, as you see, is flat. And then you have what's known as the firmament, whatever exactly that means, but some sky-like globe that surrounds the sky. And then, interestingly enough, you have what is called the pillars of the Earth. Because, hey, how does the Earth stand still, right? Without understanding what, much of the knowledge that we have about how, you know, but, but how does the Earth, how are we here? What's, what's holding the Earth up? Right? It's a question we maybe asked ourselves as a young child, and then maybe we learned a little bit more. But there are pillars. So in the ancient world, they understood that there are pillars holding up the earth. Now, I don't know what they held. The pillar was holding up the pillars, but as we'll see, that's also going to be a discussion. But in the ancient world, they understood that there were pillars holding up the world. Now, do we believe there are pillars holding up the world? Forget believe. We've seen the pictures. We know that there are no pillars holding up the world. The world is not suspended by pillars. And yet, as we'll see, there is a passage in the Talmud which seems to say quite clearly that the world is held up by pillars, right? So how do we understand such a passage? How do we understand such a passage? So now we're going to come to another, it's still based on the same premise, 
that the Maharal suggested earlier, that the rabbis are not talking about science, but a different way how to understand one of these passages, and we'll see. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, so, so certainly I think you're, you're probably, the most famous example is Al-Shlosh Advarim HaOlam Omeid, right? Over here, the Gemara is a little bit more detailed, but yes, he's going to go along those lines. It's similar, the, there's a famous Mishnah in Avos, which says the world stands on three things and says on Torah, Avodah, Gemilos Chasadim, right? So there clearly, clearly, it's not talking, it's, it's meant to be a metaphor, it's meant to be even, you know, it's, it's, it's not meant to be taken literally. Over here, as we'll see, this passage is a little harder to read, but he's going to follow that same line of thinking, essentially, that it's an allegory. But let's, let's read it inside, okay? We're on the second page, second paragraph. In the second chapter of Chagiga, Tanya, Rav Yossi, Omer, we have a Brisa, Rav Yossi, taught, Woe to the humans. Shiroz, they see, they look around, but they don't appreciate on what they're standing. He's saying, like, they don't understand how the world works. And what does that mean? What does the world stand upon? On pillars. Okay? Just like, which seems to be the, nature, the, the, the simple knowledge of back in the day. And the pillars are on water. Okay? And the water is on mountains. Subwater mountains. Okay? The harim al ruach. And the mountains rest on a certain wind. Okay? Varuach besa'ara. And the wind is on a storm. Is on the stormy wind. Adkan, that is the end of the Talmudic passage. Okay? So the truth is, for hundreds, for thousands, of, for about a thousand years after this passage of the Talmud is written, most people, many people, may have read this passage literally and had no issue with it. Because, yeah, most people in the ancient world believed that the world was indeed on pillars. Like the picture we have over here. But the Maharal writing this already, you know, a few hundred years ago, and certainly us in 2023, like, uh-uh, no way. This is certainly not the truth. And therefore, Rav Yossi, who is suggesting this, does that mean that he just simply is unknowledgeable? And if, again, we go back to our original question. If he's unknowledgeable about science, maybe he's unknowledgeable about other things as well. Why should we take him seriously? Okay, so let's see how he addresses the Gemara. The Choshvim, first he fleshes out the question. The Choshvim, they think, they understand this passage in its simple fashion. That our sages believe that there are pillars to the world and similar things. And the matter is very far fetched. Okay, next paragraph. He says this passage should be understood as an allegory and a very precious, very important allegory. It's coming to teach us a very important idea. He says, I found, he doesn't quote from who, but he says he found a, an explanation uh, uh, of the allegory of this passage. That it came to say, that it comes to say like the following. God upholds the world to prevent the world from, so to speak, falling apart. The world does not have any intrinsic, you know, uh, something that would allow it to exist. It is only through God who keeps the world going. You know, the, 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 the way the Kabbalists understand this is that, you know, when it says that God created the world through speech, there should be light and there is light. The way the Kabbalists understand is that God is continuously, so to speak, saying those words. You know, the notion that God created the world through speech is, is to tell you that the world, you know, how substantive is speech. I said the words, they disappear, right? So if it says that God created the world through speech, what that means is that it could be here right now, it could be gone a second later, right? And I said these words, a few seconds later, it stops resonating through the, a split second later, it stops resonating. So God has to continuously speak, so to, so to speak. God has to continuously will creation to exist. Without it, it shouldn't exist. There is no reason to assume that the world will continuously exist. And therefore, there are many psukim that, that relate this idea that God is constantly upholding the world. If God were, so to speak, to stop willing the world to exist, we'd all be gone. Scary thought, right? So the world is, the world, there's nothing, God's in create, the world shouldn't exist. You know, one of the questions that people have is, you know, is there even space for the world? If God is, is infinite and God, so to speak, you know, that where, where do you even have space for the world? And so the Ariza, one of the great Kabbalists, came up with this complicated notion of tzimtzum, idea of a constriction, where God, so to speak, 
you know, almost like sucked in his gut, so to speak, right? Not literally, but, but sucked in his gut to make room for us because there's no room even for existence, right? So, of course, if God were to, so to speak, exhale again, I'm speaking not, not literally, then there would be no world. So, again, the world shouldn't exist, and God is willing the world to exist at every moment. That's principle number one. Let's keep on reading. And how does God, what's the function, what's the mechanism through which God ensures the world to exist? Through the connection that God has to the world, right? God is, is willing the world and is connected to the world. And through this connection, the world exists. Not without this. The earth, which is very physical. If it wouldn't have a connection to God, if God would not be connected to this earth, it wouldn't exist. Again, God has to will it to exist in every moment. Here's principle number two. And it is impossible, impossible for the world to have a direct connection to God. This is not possible. It is impossible that something which is so physical, so material, like the earth, to have a direct connection to God, it must have a medium. And through this medium, it has a connection to God. Let me explain what this means. You all have a cell phone, right? Cell phone, I think. Fair to say? I think it's fair to say. Okay, so now... Let's say, you know, our cell phone, the way we charge our cell phone, we need, a, we need, a plug, we need some el- electricity, we need some, some energy to, to ensure that our phone gets charged, okay? Heaven forbid our phone should not have, you know, should die. That would be like the worst thing that could possibly happen to a human being in this day and age. My phone died yesterday. I was traveling. I was in New York. My phone died. I was like, you know, I was like in a tier Korea. It was terrible, right? It's so sad. Okay. So how do you charge your phone, right? You need energy. So let's say I would take my phone and I would go to a nuclear plant. I go to nuclear plants and I go to the centrifuges and go to whatever. I go to the middle of the nuclear plants and I take my phone, take my charger, and plug it into the plug it into the center of, of energy. What would happen to my phone? <laughs> It'll be a big mess, right? It's too intense. The electricity, the energy that's being con- that's being generated there is just too intense. So what happens? They take the energy from there and they move. They pull, start pulling it out and then they bring it to your you know your block or your 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 basic neighborhood. And, they, and the, uh, the electricity start, first goes through something called a transformer. And what does the transformer do? The transformer breaks it down into smaller packets, smaller packets of electricity. And then from the transformer, now, if you were to plug your phone into electricity, uh, the transformer, it would also explode. Less fire, but it would still explode. So what happens? It breaks it down further and puts it into these small little packets, which ultimately make it into the wall of your house. You plug it into the wall, and the electricity is so small at that point that it's just the right amount to energize your phone or whatever, and therefore, it's all great. So it's, right, the the plant itself is too intense. You need to break it down, break it down, break it down until you're able to use it in a healthy fashion. That is what he's describing here about God. And that's what the mystics understand is our our relationship with God. God is the force that that keeps the world going. But God is too intense, so to speak. You know, just like that, the energy plant, the nuclear energy plant is too intense. And so in order for God to relate to the world, we need mediums, okay? So there are different schemes, different ways of looking at what those mediums are. This passage over here is going to explain to us what the mediums are. What is the transformer that allows God to relate to this world without blowing the world up, without being too much that the world simply can't exist. If God, were, if God were to appear to you right now, as he's going to describe soon, it'd be overwhelming, right? That's in this week's Parsha. It says the Jewish people, Chazal or sages teach us, that when God started sharing the Ten Commandments with the Jewish people, what happens? Parchanishmasam. Their soul departed because it's like plugging yourself into a nuclear plant. How do we physical beings connect directly to God? We also need something to break it down. We have angels and we have different things which are breaking it down. So this passage over here is trying to explain to us why does, how does the world maintain its existence? What is the connection point between God and the world? What, is, what enables the world to exist? Because God certainly is not connecting directly to the world itself. Are you with me in terms of the premise of this passage? Obviously very different than the little picture we drew over here. Now we're about to share a, a spiritual idea about how the world continues to exist. If God is so mighty and powerful and spiritual, how does this physical world exist? And that's what this passage is coming to explain. A profoundly different 
radically different explanation of the passage from when we initially read it, right? Let's see. So he says, and therefore, the last words on, on paragraph three, and therefore it said, the, the Gemara said, what does the world stand upon? On literally the pillars. But he understands that pillars are not meant literally, but rather, as he's about to explain, the earth is given to man. Let's just jump to paragraph number four. And the Talmud actually calls man, people, pillars. Why do, why do we call people pillars? A pillar is something which stands upright. And there is something unique about people that is different than all other animals or all other living beings, and that is our uprightness, right? Maybe we're hunched over a little bit now, but we are upright. Whereas the lion, as powerful as he or she is, is hunched over, right? Humans are amudim. We are pillars. We stand straight. We don't find that by any other creature. No other creature goes straight, stands straight. All of them go, all of them travel, all of them walk, bent over. And of course, this is a reflection. It's not just evolution alone. It's a reflection of our greatness. That we are the kings of the lower world. And everything in the world is meant to serve us. And this is what it says in the Torah. So the famous verse, which says that God created us in his image. And at the same time, it says, The Torah in describing God's revelation at Sinai says that there is no image of God. So what does it mean that we're created in God's image? And at the same time, there is no image. What does it mean? The meaning is, Someone wants to make a symbol to demonstrate something godly, something like God, who is the king, the ruler over the entire world. The symbol would certainly be something which stands straight. Right? Think of what did kings in the ancient world hold? A scepter, a staff, which demonstrated the nobility, demonstrated their, their rulership over everything else. You know, the shepherd, the lowly shepherd, you know, what's the shepherd's staff? It's curved, right? It demonstrates a certain humility. The king, uh-uh, no way. It's a straight, imposing, powerful, majestic type of symbol, right? There's a lot of chachma, there's a lot of wisdom that goes into, um, you know, even architecture, you know, in the, in, in, you know, there, there's a lot of discussion, you know, depends on my house, you know, where I live, I live next door, and it's two pillars in the front of the house. My house is also 120 years old. Okay? Most houses are still standing, thank God. Uh, we should all, also all, all be as healthy. Okay, but, 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 but modern you know, architecture rejected the pillar, right? Rejected the pillar. There's a philosophy behind it. It's not just stam. It's not just because. There, there's, there's a lot of philosophy behind the architecture, but the point is that it, it represents a certain majesty, a certain, a certain sense of ruling over. And so he's trying to explain, and, and based on this, that when a Torah says that we're created in God's image, there is something about us that is similar to God. Not that we look like God, but there's something majestic about us because just like God who rules over the heavens, we as humans are meant to rule over the earth. And therefore it's appropriate that the word amudim, the word pillar, represents a person. Okay? Let's turn the page. Va'amar, uh, paragraph five. Va'amar, we're just skipping around a tiny bit. She'amudim omdim al that the pillars stand on water. So now already we know it cannot mean water literally. So what is water a metaphor for in the entire Torah? Some of you may have read ahead already. But throughout the entire Torah, we spoke about this last Shabbos, actually. Throughout the entire Torah, water is a metaphor for Torah. Ein mayim ela Torah. Last week's Torah portion, it described the Jewish people traveling for three days and coming and not finding any water. And then, you know, and, and the Gemara tells us that they had no Torah connection because mayim, water, always is represented as Torah. You know why, by the way? It's a beautiful, beautiful explanation given in the Talmud. It says because water goes from the highest of places and it always finds, goes down to the lowest of places. Torah could reach, it goes from God, directly from God, but there's no such thing as being too small, too little, too shallow, too not religious enough to, to connect. No, 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 no. The Torah goes to the lowest of places. The Torah could reach all of us no matter where we are. So, Ein Mayim El Torah. The water is Torah, okay? So, Ein Mina Adam. So, says the Maharal. The water over here is referring to a specific subset of the human race. Sheyesh Lem Torah. People who have Torah, i.e., you and I, the Jewish people. Vidavr Zayadu, again, as we said, Kiyat Torah Nikras Mayim, it is known that Torah is water, okay? Vratzalomar, I'm skipping a line. Shekol Mina Adam Mikuyamim 
Bishvil Yisrael Sheyesh Lehem HaTorah. That the world exists. The world exists because, not just only because of humans, but specifically a portion of the humans. And those are humans who are connected to Torah, i.e. the Jewish people, right? The Jewish people are seen, the, the Rav Yehuda HaLevi, the author of the Kuzari, describes the human race as, an org, as a body. He says, this nation is this finger. This nation is the eye. This nation is the nose. We're all part of a body. But in a body, there is something that keeps the, world, keeps the body going. What is that? In the ancient world, is the heart. I would say the heart, the brain. But basically, it keeps everything going. He says, the Jewish people are the heart of the entire world. It's not to say that we don't care about the finger and the finger is unimportant. All the nations of the world have a role. But what gives it life? That's the role. That's what it means to be a Jew, that we have an obligation to look out for, to give spiritual and material life to all those around us. And so the idea is that the world, the, the, world, the Amudim, all the people, what do they rest upon? What is their existence predicated on? It's predicated on the heart of society, and that is water, i.e. the Jewish people who are connected to Torah. And then, let's go to paragraph 6. That the water stands on mountains. What is mountains? Mountains, this is a more straightforward metaphor, I guess we'd say, are the, are the, are the great sages, those who tower above everyone else. Those are the unique ones in each generation, right? Meaning we're all, you know, Jews. We all have a connection to Torah. But there certainly there are those who are truly towering over others. There are real tamide chachamim, real true scholars, or real tzaddikim, or tzaddikot, really people who are really fully immersed in Torah. Those are the mountains. Ki aharhu mesuyam v'nikar ba'olam. A mountain is something which is, uh, stands out. It's recognizable in the world. Kacha chachamim hagdolim. So too the great sages. Nikarim musuyamim kaharim alalu. Like these mountains. Okay, paragraph 7. V'amar v'aharim al haruach. And it says the mountains themselves are on the wind. What does that mean? This refers to what is known as, in English, it doesn't translate well in English because we're in a Christian world, but the Holy Spirit sounds a little too Christian for us. But Ruach HaKodesh is this idea that we have this divine, you know, influence. That it's not prophecy, which we'll get to in a moment, but Ruach HaKodesh is that we're divinely inspired, that sometimes we're doing, so, a, a, a sage is going to write, they say that, you know, Rashi's commentary on the Torah and on the Talmud was so magnificent, it couldn't have just been as great and brilliant as Rashi was. They say, it must have been written, they, you know, with Ruach HaKodesh, with some divine influence, because it's just too great. It's just, it's so otherworldly. Right? That's where Ruch, Ruch HaKodesh is basically some divine, you know, we all have a, a taste of that when we get inspiration. Right? What it, all of a sudden we get this great idea. Right? Where does the idea come from? It comes from something outside of us. You know, in, in Yiddish, how do we call, what's the word for idea in Yiddish? Anyone know? For idea. In the, in the Yiddish, in, 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 yeah, Rayon in Hebrew, but in Yiddish it's a beautiful word. It's a beautiful, I don't speak a lot of Yiddish, but there's one word I love. In Yiddish, the word for an idea is an einfal. An einfal. It ein fell, it fell ein into me, and that's the, isn't it beautiful? I get my inspiration not from within myself. I recognize my limitations. Ein fell, it fell into me. Right? It stands outside of me, falls into me. That's that's an inkling of ruach hakodesh. Ruach hakodesh means that there's some force outside of me, some divine force that's influencing me to do, to write, to to accomplish. That's ruach hakodesh. So even the great sages, for them to be successful, they need something outside of them, and that is ruach hakodesh. Okay? Um, okay. And, and through this level of Ruach HaKodesh, this divine flow, they have an even greater connection to God. Now let's go back to the passage. Sha'amar of Yossi said, Right? Again, the passage that we started this all off began with Rabbi Yossi lamenting that there are people in the world who don't know what they're standing on. Right? They see and they don't understand. So the first way we re- read this was that they don't understand the grandeur of creation. They don't understand that the flat earth is on a pillar, which is on water, which is on winds. Okay, nebuch. They don't understand science. It's like, nah, it's not talking about that at all. What it's trying to say, well, the whole passage is, what is the goal of the passage? Passage is, shibech ha-Torah kolkach. The whole job was to elevate and to recognize the value of spirituality. You know, we're sitting here learning in this room and thinking, okay, I'm becoming a little more knowledgeable. Maybe I need something past my time. I don't know. How accomplishing is this? But when you read this passage and you recognize that the world exists through Torah study, and the more Torah study we have, the more, fir- the more firmly planted the world is, Right? All of a sudden, that changes our understanding of Torah study. And that's learned from this passage. 
You know, some of the some of the later thinkers, some of the later Jewish thinkers suggest that the reason that we have different time zones is because there's a passage in the in the Zohar which says that if there's a moment where people will not be learning Torah, the world will stop existing. We need Torah study to maintain that connection, right? So without Torah, Torah and that's, that's exactly what this passage is saying, that Torah is the lifeblood, that you right now are the charger for the world, that without people studying Torah, the world would not exist, right? We think it's so small, it's so nothing. No, 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 no. The world, and we say, people don't recognize, and we don't recognize, we who are learning Torah don't recognize how valuable it is that we are holding up the world, that through Torah study and doing mitzvot, etc., that keeps the world going. That is the focus of this passage. The rabbis, again, going back to his first thesis, they are not coming to talk to you about science. That's not their lane. They're coming to teach you about spirituality, and that's the meaning behind this passage. Okay. He says, Ashi'ilu yadu, because had we known, or had we known, if we really focus on Sheva HaTorah Mitzvah, the greatness, the praise of Torah, and the performance of a single mitzvah, when we recognize that, when we recognize that without us studying Torah, without us doing mitzvahs, the world will literally stop existing. Wouldn't that compel us to do more? If I were to tell you the world is literally on your shoulders, you don't believe me, so you won't. But if you'd really believe me, if you really believe that, that the, through Torah, through mitzvot, the world exists. And yeah, maybe someone else is doing Torah right now. But you are contributing. If I were to tell you the world is about to collapse, could you please put a hand up to make sure it doesn't fall down? You'd be there in a second, right? I don't care how tired you are. You're going to hold up. That's what we're doing. The Torah, the mitzvot, we are holding up the world. And that's where Yossi says, woe to the people in the world. You don't realize what you have in your hands. Again, because the world stands on all these things. Let's turn the, to, the, to page, page five. And the final words in that passage, that the wind is on the storm. What does the storm refer to? Not just divine, not just divine flow, but rather, the intense wind, the intense storm is a reference to prophecy. It explains to us why. And it really goes back to what, how we started this. When we say Ruach HaKodesh, this divine idea, divine inspiration, that is lower. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is when you have an actual message or an actual image from God. Ruach HaKodesh means you feel like you're, you know, you have a flow. Maybe you've done, you know, sometimes you're writing something or you're doing something. You feel just like this almost, you know, this, you feel just natural. You feel like it's just going. That's Ruach HaKodesh. Nevuah is when there's a message. Nevuah is when there's a, an image. V'nikra medregas ruach hakodesh ruach bavad ruach hakodesh that lower level is called just a wind. Mipnei she'ein bar ruach hakodesh kol kach bechazaka. It's not such a strong force. Aval hanevua, but prophecy haisaboa bekoach al hanavi. It came with an intense force. Lakach lo haya yachal hanavi laamod kasher haisaba elav hanevua. This is not so well known. The Rambam speaks about this a lot, and that is that when a prophet would experience prophecy, you know what happened? They fall to the ground and they start convulsing. It would look like they're having uh, some form of a, of, of a, a seizure. Because, why? It makes sense based on what we said earlier. God, humans. There's a, there's a void. There's a gap over here. God, humans, right? So when God is connecting to us, it's like plugging our phone into something very intense. And so with the exception of Moshe, that's the novelty, that Moshe could stand up, that Moshe could speak to God. Most prophets, either they experience prophecy in their sleep, so that already there is, you know, that they're not. But if, it, if they had to experience prophecy while they were awake, they would start convulsing because that they, they couldn't stand. They literally couldn't stand. They'd fall down to the ground. That's the only way they could experience prophecy, right? And that's why prophecy is described by Ruach Sa'ara, a stormy wind, because it was something, you imagine standing outside during a hurricane, you fall over. That's why prophecy is described in that fashion. So again, let's just summarize what the Maharal has just finished telling us. We just read a passage that on face value, and probably for many people for many years, was understood literally that Rav Yossi was telling us about the pillars that hold up the world. Nice, very nice, telling us a little scientific fact. If you didn't want to, you know, you wanted to learn Gemara all day, you didn't want to go to a uh, uh, you know, a uh, uh, natural sciences class, you could have opened the page of the Gemara and Chagiga and would have learned some, some science, okay? But, but the Maral says that's not what he was talking about. He would never talk about such a thing because it's not his job to talk about such a thing. It must be that he was telling us something else. What else would he be, could he be telling us? It must be it's all an allegory. It mu- and, and therefore he starts to unpack the meta- all the metaphors. And the metaphor, really what the whole purpose of the passage is to teach us, that the entire world exists because of Torah study, because of mitzvot, because of connection to God. And we have to reckon, and Rav Yossi was ultimately teaching us to open our eyes to that. And the more we think about that, the more we contemplate that, the more we're able to appreciate our role. And the quote-unquote small things that we're doing are not so small. They're literally holding up the world. 
But the point that, fine, that's the point of that passage. The point that Maharal is making is that don't ask these questions about the rabbis not knowing science. Either A, they're teaching about the cause of the cause, or they are teaching, well, some of those passages are meant to be understood allegorically. Over here too, how does the world stand? So we can give you a scientific explanation that the world exists and is all here because of whatever the reason is here. And there's a spiritual reason. The reason the world is here is because there are people studying Torah. There are people doing mitzvahs. That's why the world is here. Is one more true than the other? Maybe. But one's talking science and one's talking spirit. They're two totally separate things. Don't get confused. That's the Maharal's thesis. Okay? Any questions? Would a reformed School, I'm sure, still consider what you're saying. I doubt it. I doubt it. They, they, uh, you know, I, I think one of the big, uh, you know, uh, criticism that came out of the reform world was saying that the rabbis, you know, they said what they said for their time. And, but, but they said that not only about science. See, here's, here's, where, here's, here's the jump. And this is the danger. Just like the, the arguments would be, just like the scientists, clearly, they were living in the ancient world. They're living in Babylon, you know, Mesopotamia. You know, just they, they, they didn't know. And the same is true for their rulings. Their rulings were said for their context and their culture. But nowadays, we live in a more elevated world. You know, the, one of the early uh, thinkers for reform movements used to call, like, the, the Jews of the Torah. Uh, I forget the term he used, but basically, like, a, like a racist term of it. Like, um, that they were... Um, Ah, what's the term you used to use? Basically saying, since we were in the Middle East, we had like a certain, you know, negative characteristics as opposed to the refined Europeans. He wrote this before the Holocaust, of course. But, but, uh, but you know, but basically, and therefore, you know, we can understand those things in the context. But basically what that does, it, 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 you know, then you're left with nothing. The whole Torah falls apart, right? And so that's, that's part of the challenge. If you're going to say, and, and that's part of what the Maharal is grappling over here. If you're going to reject the science, it could be a quick jump to rejecting some of the laws, which is, the, the, and many people, the reform movement essentially rejects the Talmud, more or less. They see it as a good book to learn. It's part of our history, but it's not part of our living, day-to-day living, right? Okay. All that said, Rav Hirsch, Rav Samson Rafael Hirsch, a great German philosopher, has a very different approach. And I'm going to read to you from a letter that he wrote, uh, just uh, a part of the letter. Well, actually, okay, <laughs> maybe I wrote too much. I'm going to read it a little bit quickly. You can follow along with me. This English is a little bit easier to read. It's written uh, in a more modern, uh, you know, not that long ago. He says like this, In my opinion, the first principle, the first paragraph is just beautiful. He says, The first principle that every student of Chazal, Chazal is just the term that we use for the rabbis of the mission of the Talmud, Every student of Chazal's statements must keep before his eyes the following. Chazal were the sages of God's law, the receivers, transmitters, and teachers of his Toros, his mitzvos, and his interpersonal laws. They did not especially master the natural sciences, geometry, astronomy, or medicine, except insofar as they needed them for knowing, observing, and fulfilling the Torah. We did not find that this knowledge was transmitted to them from Sinai. So, so far, he agrees with what the Maharal said, that their primary focus was Torah, not science. There is no tradition. And again, I want to be clear. There are streams of thoughts within the Jewish world that say, no, the rabbis knew science and we don't know what they're talking about, right? But both the Maharal and Rav Hirsch are both emphasizing this note that the rabbis were not focused on science. Okay, we'll see. Rav Hirsch takes it in a bit of a different direction. Nowadays too, it is enough for the non-specialist to know about any of these areas of knowledge, whatever contemporary experts teach that is generally accepted as true. This applies to the lawyer vis-a-vis all other areas, to the mathematician and the astronomer regarding the natural sciences, to the expert on flora regarding all areas. We expect none of them to seek out the truth and satisfy his inclinations any field other than his own specialty, right? Think about your profession, right? I'll speak for myself. I'm a rabbi. Do I know math? Ah, no, not at all. Do I know science? Eh, eh, not really, right? So, but it's okay if I'm a therapist. My background's in therapy, right? So I'm a therapist. Do I have to know, uh, you know, the, the inner workings, uh, I don't know, the, the way the, the constellations work? No, it's not part of my field, right? So I have a basic knowledge. I'm not ignorant, but I don't know much beyond that. It's just not my field. We don't expect that. Moreover, even in the area where one is, is an expert, it is neither possible for him nor expected of him to know everything through personal investigation and experience. Most of his knowledge rests upon the investigations of others. If they had made a, mis- made a mistake, it is not his fault, right? So in other words, if I were, yeah, again, I'll pretend I'm a therapist for a second, and I'm going to use the latest modalities of, of, of therapy. Did I do the research to tell you that cognitive behavioral th- theory, uh, therapy is good? No. A lot of people, there are a lot of studies, and I trust those studies because I looked into them. They look valid, like valid studies. And so I'm going to apply them. You go to the doctor and you call the doctor, should I get this vaccine? Should I not get that vaccine? Right? I'm sure you had similar conversations this past year, right? So did the doctor go ahead and give the vaccine to 4,000 mice and tell you what their conclusion was? Of course not. 
they, they read some medical journals, they made an educated guess, and, that, and they did the right thing. You said, I can't believe it. How do you know? You didn't try it out on a billion people. Of course not. That's not their job. Their job is to look around and learn. It is sufficient and praiseworthy of his knowledge encompasses all that is accepted as true at his time and place and generation. The greatness of his wisdom is in no way belittled if in a later generation it is discovered that some of the things he maintained or accepted on the authority of others are unreliable, right? So if someone comes along in 10 years from now and says, everything we knew about COVID is not true. Okay, it's probably going to happen, right? Who knows? It's fine. It's, okay, we try our best at the time. You know, we do we do based on the knowledge of the doctors of the time. The greatest of them knew all the wisdom and science of all the great non-Jewish scholars whose wisdom and teachings became famous in their generations. So here, the Rav Hirsch says that the rabbis were, you know, knowledgeable. They weren't ignorant, but what were they knowledgeable? They went and they said, okay, this person's writing a book about medicine. I'm going to go get it and I'm going to go read it, right? Who's the famous, uh, what's his name? Whatever, you know, they, they read the basic science of the day. They read the basic, you know, they read Plato, they read Aristotle, whatever. They had the basic knowledge of what people consider the science and medicine of the day. So he says, imagine if a scholar such as Humboldt had lived in their times and had traveled the ends of the world for his biological investigations. If upon his return he reports that in some distant land there is a humanoid creature growing from the ground, or that he found mice that had been generated from the soil, and had in fact seen a mouse that was half earth and half flesh, and his report had been accepted by the world as true. Okay, in other words, if the greatest doctors of the time had done all the investigations, then come back and said, hey, I, I, I encountered like, uh, you know, these... These, draco- I don't know, these strange looking creatures, half human, half or dirt, half mice, half dirt, right? And they were to tell you that. Would you say no? I don't know. That's what the doctors and the researchers get. You know, that's what they're coming and telling us. We accept it. Did, do you know all, all the science that you learned in school? Did you investigate it? No. They told you. They explained it to you. You accept it, right? Wouldn't we expect Chazal? Wouldn't we expect our sages to discuss the Torah aspects that apply to these instances? If someone were to tell it, come back from Mars and say, hey, there are aliens on Mars, right? I'm not there. Someone, we sent a, sh- a ship up there. They came as their aliens. So it would be my obligation as a rabbi to say, okay, well, you know, if they come and they want to speak to you and they do this on Shabbos, oh, whatever, they'll, they'll address it. Right? And then in 20 years from now, we find out the whole thing was a hoax. No one even made it to Mars. Whatever. Okay, fine. Well, you, it's my, I, I, didn't, I made a mistake? No. I assumed that the sign, the NASA knew what they were talking about and I trusted them. What laws of defilement and decontamination apply to these creatures? Or we expect them to go on long journeys to find out whether that what the world accepted is really true, right? Am I supposed to go to Mars to find out if NASA was telling the truth? Of course not. And if, as we see things today, these instances are considered fiction, can Chazal be blamed? Can our sages be blamed for ideas that were accepted by the naturalists of their times? And this is what really happened. These statements are to be found in the works of Pliny, who lived in Rome at the time of the Second Temple was destroyed, and who collected in his books on nature all that was well known and accepted in his day. The rabbis were well versed in the science of their time. The Talmud declares, the Talmud above the Kama declares, a human spine after seven years turns into a snake. This applies only if he did not kneel at Modim. Anyone who reads this today, he's writing the 19th century, finds it laughable. But Pliny says the same statement almost word for word. He writes, after a number of years, the human spine turns into a snake. This was ancient medicine. That's what they believed. So you're going to blame the sages for looking at the science book of the day and say, oh, everyone turns into a snake. Okay. So they accepted that. Chazal, however, however, used this to teach a Muslim lesson, right? They want to teach us, uh, they were not just teaching us medicine, they want to use this scientific quote-unquote fact to teach us something. To any mind, it was clear that every similarly surprising statement of Chazal, if you look into it, it was accepted as true by the scholars of the time. Okay, let's keep on reading. We find the Chazal themselves consider the wisdom of the Gentile scholars equal to their own in the natural sciences. To determine who was right in areas where the gentle sages disagreed with their own knowledge, they did not rely on their tradition, but on reason. Moreover, they even respect the opinion of the gentle scholars, admitting when the opinion of the latter seem more correct than their own. In the Talmud, we learn, there's a passage in the Talmud that says like this, the Jewish sages said, by day the sun passes beneath the firmament and at night above it. Okay, again, the firmament is this like bubble over the earth and they understood the sun goes under it and at night it goes above it. The sages of the nature is maintained by day beneath the firmament and at night beneath the ground. Okay. And Rebbe said, their opinion seems more correct than ours. Unbelievable. The rabbis had a debate with the sages of the time. Where does the sun go? They had no idea where the sun goes at night. Where does it disappear to? And they had a debate. They thought one thing. The scientists of the day thought another. And comes along Rebbe. You know, Rebbe, is, he's the author of the Mishnah. He's, he's Rebbe Huda. He's great. He's huge, right? And he says, I think the scientists are right. So what does that tell us? It tells us that they accepted. They learned 
the science books of the day and they accept it, right? To my thinking, this clearly proves what I've been saying. This is my approach to the study of these areas, my limited faculties. If I have made a mistake, may Hashem forgive my errors. Okay, so what is he telling us? <clears throat> what the Maharal is telling us is a little different, excuse me, Rav Hirsch is telling us a little different than the Maharal. You know what he's, the Maharal is saying, no passage in the Talmud is about science. No passage in the Talmud is about medicine. It's just not true. It's all about something else. You're just reading it wrong, okay? That's how the Maharal addresses all those questions. Reverse says, no, I have no problem saying that the rabbis weighed in on medicine, medicinal issues or scientific issues, and they may have made mistakes because they simply were using the knowledge of the time. When you have this very long passage in the Gemara that tells you all these different medical procedures, yeah, they were wrong. Says the, says, so, so would, let's, let's go, let's go, let's compare and contrast. The Maharal would read that passage and say, eh, you don't know what, it's not talking about medical procedures. It's talking about whatever, something totally different. You're just reading it wrong. It's talking about some moral ideas, some spiritual ideas. Rav Hirsch says, no, they were talking about medical ideas. They were wrong. I have no problem with that. It wasn't their specialty. Torah is their specialty. Torah, Misenai, Torah, they had a tradition from. Science, they just incorporated some science into the Torah. Yes. Oh, that had, no. No, I was just thinking that the key uh, sentence there is that he said, we don't find that this knowledge was transmitted to them from Sinai. That's right. Just saying this, this kind of thing didn't come from Sinai with uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. That's right. That's right. And again, there are those who disagree. There are, there are within our tradition, within Jewish tradition, there are those who say, no, the rabbis are knowledgeable in science. And you could figure out how to do brain surgery by knowing enough Torah. I wouldn't recommend it. But, but there, are, there are those who, who take this approach, some very important, prominent views. Rav Hirsch is saying, no, it's not part of our tradition, and therefore there's, there's, there's no inconsistency here. Yes, the authors of the Talmud thought it would be wise to incorporate some medicine. The medicinal pieces, we could hold off on. The, the, the Torah pieces, heaven forbid, heaven forbid, that comes directly from God. Okay, yes? Did the rabbis defend Galileo? At the time of the, the Talmud's written before him. At the time, I, I don't know enough of the. Probably not locally. That would be a pretty foolish thing. Yeah. They're getting killed anyway, uh, so it would just would not be a very wise idea. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough about uh, the, the the rabbis living at the time. Okay, the last piece I'm just going to summarize. He says, you know, it's important. I think there's a wise idea. Regardless, he says, you know, when we come to passages like this, and this is the Maharal has made this point numerous times. It's a good idea to be humble. You know, who are we? We're going to open a page of the Talmud. We have a question. We say, ah, the rabbis were wrong. That's pretty chutzpahdik. Not, not just because it's, it's, it's disrespectful. It's because, did you read the whole Talmud? Do you understand everything that's going on? For you to flippantly say, well, this passage makes no sense. The rabbis make no sense. I see this law, it makes no sense. Ah, forget it. The Rav Hirsch, like the Maharal, has said to us so many times before, a little humility is not, never a bad idea. To say, I don't know. Both as a teacher, as a student, is the greatest of things. Rashi, the greatest of teachers, uh, in, his, in his commentary on the Chumash, a number of times he writes, why this word is here, or why this is here, I don't know. Beautiful, beautiful. It is the, is the key. You know, we, we recognize there are things greater than us, right? So we come to these passages that are complicated. As we saw, as we see now, there are different ways of approaching these scientific passages. Either A, understanding they're not scientific passages, or B, saying they're science, but it wasn't part of the rabbi's focus, and therefore it's okay. Either when we come to challenges within, our, within life in general, but certainly within the Torah, things which we understand are godly, things which we understand are greater than us, a little bit of humility is not a terrible thing. The words, ani yodea, custom, accustom yourself to say, ani lo yodea, I don't know, will be in a good place. Okay, thank you so much.